There is one thing that you should know about myself, and that is that I am a Seventh-day Adventist. That means that I believe in the biblical creation, that the Bible is the ultimate standard of truth. Obviously, there are people with other belief systems who appeal to other authorities, their own wisdom or somebody else's wisdom. I appeal to the scriptures. And one of the great things about that is that the scriptures are full of mysteries. I came across this one a while ago, and it really left me scratching my head. This is Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now, I read Uncle Arthur's you know, Bible stories. And I don't remember anybody in there saying there is no God. In fact, the main problem seems to have been in the Old Testament that there were too many gods. What is David talking about here? What could be going on with this? It's very mysterious to me. I know who David thought was God. He thought that God was the creator of the universe and all things. Some people might say, well, you know, he means no God in Israel or something here, but that's not what he's saying. I'm not claiming to be a biblical scholar, but um, I have noticed there is a pattern in what David wrote because he repeats this over again, almost word for word, in Psalm 53, 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Who, almost a thousand years before Jesus was born, thought there was no God? That seems strange. Who, back then, thought there was no creator? The fool. Apparently the fool, that's right. <laughs> the fool. Apparently, David had encountered people who had this belief. My suspicion is that this may, in fact, be one of the first records that we have of people believing that there was no creator. And, of course, that is just as much a belief as my belief in the creator God of the Bible. Who back then might have thought these sorts of thoughts? Well, I, you know, I'm interested in it, so I went and started looking at different philosophers and other literature from ancient times. And the oldest claim that there is no God or angels or anything like that out there that I could find actually comes from India, of all places. There was a philosopher, philosophy named Shavaka, and the uh, Proponent of that philosophy, uh, named Brihaspati, um, he said, there is no heaven, no final liberation, nor any soul in another world. Well, I thought that everybody in India was a, uh, you know, worshipping all kinds of gods too. What was going on there? We don't know much about this philosophy because primarily what we have are the arguments against it. And the quotes that we have from this particular school of philosophy come from those who are criticizing it. But they can at least give us some idea of what was going on here. Interestingly enough, the Brahmins, with design arguments, successfully countered this particular claim that was being made, and this philosophy died out. Or did it? What do you think of this quote? The ancient covenant is in pieces. Man knows at last that he is alone in the universe's unfeeling immensity out of which he emerged only by chance. His destiny is nowhere spelled out, 
nor his duty. Well, this is Jacques Monnard. He's actually writing here in the 1970s, a, a French Nobel Prize winner. Is he expressing the same thoughts? We're alone in the universe. We're masters of our destiny. Nothing has changed in about 3,000 years, almost 3,000 years, apparently. One group of philosophies that, philosophers that we know a lot more about were the ancient atomists. And I'm going to start with Leucippus. Uh, he lived in the 5th century before Christ. He was the founder of this atomistic philosophy. Uh, a lot of people think that atoms are a new idea. They're not. They're not at all. Um, he said something that I think we would all agree with. Nothing comes from nothing. Sounds like Maria in The Sound of Music, doesn't it? For those of you who are fans of that uh, particular movie. Yes, nothing comes from nothing. So then the big question was, how does change occur? Because change is something, and how could that come from nothing? The solution that they came up with was that the atoms are unchanging. They are the atomos, the uncuttable thing. And they don't change, but they can be rearranged in different ways. Obviously, by the way, there was another school of philosophy that you can sort of trace back to this thought too, and that was the Platonic school of philosophy. And they said that change doesn't necessarily happen at all. Um, there's issues about perception and the ideal world and, and all sorts of things like that. Well, Leucippus was a very interesting character. He had, a, had a, an influence on many philosophers. But probably the most fascinating of all of them was a character named Democritus. He could have been the model for the uh, prodigal son. Because what happened with him was this. He, uh, his father died. His father was a very rich man. He'd made his money uh, as a military supplier to uh, Xerxes, interestingly enough. And um, uh, so when his father died, there was a lot of uh, assets and there was some cash. He took the cash and gave his brother the assets and he blew it on a world tour. He went and he learned the, the wisdom of the world and he came back uh, home uh, with nothing and lived at the end of the garden of his brother uh, who had everything at that particular point and he became the laughing philosopher. He uh, laughed at the ignorance of those who didn't have his knowledge and wisdom. He believed in the eternity of nature and space and, importantly enough, motion. Because obviously, those atoms, if they're going to change, they must move, right? So he just said, it's eternal. What you'll notice is something interesting about any philosophy that tries to deal with origins. And that is, ultimately, if you push it back far enough, there is going to be an appeal to something like infinity, the infinite, in some way. Maybe the universe is infinite, or time is infinite, or, or something like that. Democritus believed, like, these were smart guys, and they were thinking things through in a very clear and well-defined uh, well way, a very rigorous way. Democritus uh, had a follower named Epicurus, and Epicurus was great. He was a very deep thinker, and he took this philosophy even further. In fact, we call uh, this branch of philosophy that he really developed out of this Epicureanism. And you've heard it probably talked about in terms of good food. Yes. Because 
He believed in functional materialism. Functional materialism. Okay? That, um, the problem was he was accused because of that of being an atheist. He denied that. As you'll see, I'll show you some quotes he made the gods sort of remote from the material world, not involved in it, like the creator god. He believed in empiricism, that what we take in through our senses is the only reality for all practical purposes. Now, he didn't necessarily believe in this. Um, he believed in le living a good life. His followers became hedonists for obvious reasons. If uh, the only uh, the only reality is what you take in through your senses, then hey, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, let's go for it. Um, uh, he advised a little bit of restraint because too much, um, at least, uh, you know, alcohol and things can make you feel bad afterwards as well. So he said you've got to balance things out, but some of his followers tried that and some didn't. <laughs> Epicurus had a follower who lived some years later named Lucretius. He believed in the naturalistic origin of matter and life. And we're going to look at some of the things that these guys said. Now, I just want you to notice some dates, at least this date here. Lucretius, he published a book and died, we believe, about 55 BC. That book was called De Rira Natura. It was in Latin. It was the equivalent of a bestseller at the time. It was this epic five-book-long poem that's just amazing and brilliant, and it is amazing and brilliant, by the way, even though he is promoting something that obviously I would uh, not subscribe to. Atomism. Atomists argued that reality was composed of these unchanging elements, the atoms that could not rearrange, to, that could be, sorry, rearranged to create genuine change without getting something <coughs> from nothing. This puzzle that Lucretius had, uh, 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 sorry, Lucepius had, um, had proposed, this was their solution to it. So let's look at how Epicurus dealt with this. This was in a letter that he wrote. He said, we are bound to believe that in the sky, revolutions, solstices, eclipses, risings and setting in the light take place without the ministration or command either now or in the future of any being. What did David say? The heavens declare the glory of God. Greek philosophers said, the heavens declare the glory of the gods, the regularities, the perfection that we see in the movements of the heavenly bodies prove that the gods exist. Epicurus said, no. I want you to see why it is that he said these beings could not have anything to do with the movements of the planets. These beings who at the same time enjoy perfect bliss along with immortality. For troubles and anxieties and feelings of anger and partiality always imply weakness and fear and dependence upon one's neighbors. Ha, ah, look at what he did. He made the gods so holy, so perfect. They, he defined them into irrelevance. This is something that we see going on today on a routine basis. People want to get God off the hook for all of the bad stuff in nature, so therefore he mustn't be involved in theistic evolution, must be true. You will hear arguments like this on a regular basis. Redefining God, making God so holy that he doesn't interact with the material world. He stands back and lets his laws work in their natural way as he ordained and so on. And he doesn't get his hands dirty 
in the matter. Hence, says Epicurus, where we find phenomena invariably recurring, the invariability of the recurrence must be ascribed to the original inception and conglomeration of atoms, whereby the world was formed. The atoms randomly interacting without any gods involved are what formed the world. Epicurus cut off perfect gods from the material world, making them irrelevant to material beings. There is no divine judgment to face after death, no immortal soul, and for all practical purposes, what is taken in through the senses is the only reality. Are there people who embrace this kind of belief system today because they fear what will happen after death, because they fear an eternal burning hell, for example? Well, Charles Darwin was one of those people. This is what he says in his autobiography, excuse the language. I can indeed hardly see how anyone ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text, that would mean the Bible in his mind, remember he was a trained minister. The plain mean language of the text seems to show that the men who do not believe, and this would include my father, brother, and almost all of my friends, will be everlasting punished, and this is a damnable doctrine. And I want to say amen. amen. I agree with Charles Darwin about that. There is an important unity in our belief system as Seventh-day Adventists that we need to keep in mind. And the doctrine that we hold to as far as the state of the dead is concerned is a liberating doctrine that frees people from this terror of eternal burning hell, which of course came through Greek thinking into the church. Here is an interesting thing. Um, this is part of a dialogue that was written by Cicero. And he has a proponent of Epicurean philosophy and as part of this dialogue um, where different uh, individuals are talking about their views of what the gods are. Okay? So this is the proponent of Epicurean uh, philosophy speaking. He says, for he, this would be Epicurus, who taught us all the rest, has also taught us that the world was made by nature, without needing an artificer to construct it, and that the act of creation, which according to you cannot be performed without divine skill, is so easy that nature will create, is creating, and has created worlds without number. You, on the contrary, cannot see how nature can achieve all this without the aid of some intelligence. Does this sound familiar to you? Do you hear things like this today? There is a reason for that. The, these assertions that are made, these truth claims that are made, arise automatically out of certain presuppositions that these people hold on to. They are not data-driven. You can know that they're not data-driven because we believe that we have a lot more data today than they did back then. And yet, based on the philosophy, this is what they believed. 
um, taxpayers are paying a lot of money right now on the basis of this exact belief. You're out there looking for space aliens and things like that because, hey, you know, how could we be the only beings here? Here is Lucretius. And uh, this is what he said. Certainly it was no design of the atoms to place themselves in a particular order, nor did they decide what motions each should have. But atoms were struck with blows in many ways and carried along by their own weight from infinite times up to the present. For this reason, it came to pass that being spread abroad through vast space and trying every sort of combination and motion, at length those came together that produced great things like earth and sea and sky and the generation of living creatures. 55 BC. Think about this. What were the two major philosophies that were prevailing in the Roman Empire at the time that Jesus Christ, the Creator, was born into this world? One was Stoic philosophy, and the other was Epicurean philosophy. These were the two philosophies, remember, that Paul faced on Mars Hill. This was the world that Jesus was born into. A world in which there were people who did not believe that there was a creator. Did not believe that God could be intimately involved with his creation. That's the world that the creator was born into. To be intimately involved in his creation. The devil had prepared things in a very clever way. No wonder uh, there were some of the issues that were faced. You will notice that there is a formula here. This is the same formula that is used for Darwinism. The first thing to do is to deny the possibility of, of design in nature. First you, you deny design, and then you invoke lots of time and a great big universe, and that's how you get life and everything else. Okay? This is automatically going to work every time if you deny design in the first place. It's the best that, that, that you can come up with. What sort of things do we see in more recent times? Remember, number one, deny design. Here's Charles Darwin talking about time. Nature acts uniformly and slowly during vast periods of time on the whole organization in any way which may be for each creature's own good. Deny design, invoke lots of time. Oh, this is lovely. This is a quote by um, Richard Dawkins. I love Richard Dawkins. He's very plain and honest, and he is a, an advocate of his faith. Given infinite time or infinite opportunities, anything is possible. Let me ask you, is that true? No, that's nonsense. Okay? Um, if it was modified slightly, it would possibly be a true statement. By the way, let me point out something to you. The, the Epicureans understood infinity. They invoked infinity. Okay? And infin infinity was very useful to them. Uh, modern Darwinists do not invoke infinity. They just invoke a long period of time. But a long period of time is not the same thing as infinity. But let's get back to this statement here. Is this true? Given infinite time or infinite opportunities, anything is possible. It's not true because... It has some, whatever you're doing has to have a finite probability. 
You can you know, think of it like this way. If I wanted to roll a million sixes in a row with a, with a, with a, a, a die, um, I would do that an infinite number of times if, in, in infinite time. If I just kept doing it an infinite number of times, I'd just get an infinite number of millions, million sixes in a row. But how many sevens will I get? Assuming it's a six-sided dice. You'd never get it. So there has to be a possibility of it. And in inf infinity, yes, anything that's possible will happen an infinite number of times. So, uh, but this is not a strictly correct statement. Then he goes on and says, the large numbers, okay, large numbers are not the same thing as infinity. Totally different idea. There is, it's, it's, a, it's not just a quantitative difference, it is a qualitative difference. But let's continue on. Large numbers proverbially furnished by astronomy um, and the large time spans characteristic of geology combined to turn topsy-turvy our everyday estimates of what is expected and what is miraculous. Time is the miracle worker. <coughs> Aristotle made an observation about these atoms. He said that the atoms alone cannot achieve what the Epicureans claim because atoms do not move by themselves. To arrange themselves in different ways, atoms require an unmoved mover. God, or logos. Logos. This is a very, very important word. It's one of the most important Greek words that you could possibly understand. So if you're not going to learn Greek, as I am not going to, at least learn about logos. Okay, this is a wonderful word. Okay. Look at John. He begins his gospel with, in the beginning was the... Logos. And the word, Logos, was with God. And the Logos was God. Do you think that John just might have been engaging in a conversation going on in his society at the time? Do you think that maybe in John's circle of friends, there was a discussion going on like the, the, the discussion that's going on in our society today? when it comes to the origin of things. I believe there was, and I believe that the apostles were active participants in that discussion. In fact, we know that they were, because we know what they did and we know what they wrote. They were not ignorant people who were not engaged in the culture that they were part of. They were engaged in the communal discussion of these things, and they were smart, and they knew about them, and they were informed. And they made these brilliant and sublime arguments in response to this. One of the reasons why I have faith in the Bible is because of this. These men faced the kinds of arguments that we face today. This is what the apostles faced. And they faced it and they argued on the basis of something. And I want you to notice what they argued on the basis of. Well, first of all, Paul, he pointed towards the creation itself. He says in Romans 1.20, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. Those who study nature, those who live in the world and can see the design that is there. No, you know, the design does not tell you that God created the earth 6,000 years ago. It doesn't tell you that God created in six 
days. We have to have inspiration to tell us that. How else would we really know? But, but we can certainly see the hand of the designer in the creation itself. And Paul invites people to look at it. Look at the creation and see God's power. You'll remember when he addressed the Athenian, Epicurean, and Stoic philosophers. This is in Acts 17. Paul began with an appeal to the creation. Who was the unknown God? He was the God who created all things. He addresses this problem of causes. What causes the change? Remember, Lucipius said, nothing comes from nothing. Paul agreed. He said, the change came from something outside of nature, something that transcends nature, a God who is both outside of nature and reaches down in and moves the atoms. Hey, it's no wonder that Christians were kind of enthusiastic about Aristotle and Plato and unfortunately allowed themselves to be misled by those <coughs> philosophical systems later on. But you can see what the attraction was. Look at what John does. So, I love what he does here. This is John, 1 John <coughs> 1, 1. That which was from the beginning. Who was from the beginning? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the Word of life. He is saying, Yes, use your empirical senses. This is what I experienced. I'm a true witness. This is not a fable. This is not a complicated theological argument. What I have seen, what I've heard, what I've handled. For the life was manifest and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, the Creator. Because we've seen it and we've heard it, and surely we can at least see the creation and experience it with our senses and give glory to God as a consequence of that. After the apostles, after the eyewitnesses of God, the church faced all kinds of struggles and difficulties and persecution. And one of the great philosophers of the church, somebody who we never talk about, Athenagoras, wrote to the emperor, Marcus Aurelius, a Stoic, by the way, who wrote beautiful Stoic literature, which you can read today. The problem was this. The Christians were being accused of being atheists. That's a bad thing. And he was wanting to explain to the emperor, no, we are not atheists. We worship the creator God. This was the understanding of the early church. This was the teaching that the apostles left the church with. 
And Athenagoras wrote this, and his prose are beautiful. He said, beautiful without doubt is the world, excelling as well in its magnitude as in the arrangement of its parts. Both those in the oblique circle and those about the north and also in its spherical form. By the way, they believed the earth was a sphere. Yet, it is not this, but the artificer that we must worship. We don't worship the creation. We worship the creator. You sovereigns indeed rear and adorn your palaces for yourselves. But the world was not created because God needed it. For God is himself everything to himself. Light unapproachable. A perfect world. Spirit. Power. Reason. God is everything. If, therefore, the world is an instrument in tune. Oh, the, you know, just the beautiful imagery. If, therefore, the world is an instrument in tune and moving in well-measured time, I adore the being who gave its harmony and strikes its notes and sings the accordant strain and not the instrument. We do not neglect to adore God, who is the cause of the motion of the body. We do not approach and do homage to the powers, the emperors. We do not approach and do homage to the powers, but their maker and Lord. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. That means I believe in the creation. I believe in the creation because there are witnesses who were with the Creator Himself when He came down to earth and said, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist.